Hey guys, Eric Nemens here. We're going to get the show started in just a moment. But before we do, I want to ask you to do one thing. Go to halfwaytherepodcast.com and sign up for the Halfway There mailing list. You just put in your first name, put in your email, click submit. It's five seconds or less. Very easy to do. But then every Monday when a new episode comes out, I will send you an email about the new episode, and that way you'll be sure to know that it's coming out. Also, I have a bunch of interesting things planned for 2018, and I want you to be able to get those. This is the only way you can do that. So go to halfwaytherepodcast.com, put in your email, click submit, and I'll see you over there. Okay, on with the show. This is a good one. Welcome to Halfway There. My name is Eric Nevins, and this is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. And I'm excited about this one. Today, uh, my guest is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and author of 13 books, uh, Dr. Douglas Grotheis. Dr. Grotheis, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about it. Um, You were one of my professors in seminary. And I've read several of your books, and I've been digging through this one, and uh, it's it's an important topic. Um, but I'm excited also to hear more of your story. Why don't you share just a little bit with us about uh, what is uh, where you are, what's you know what God's doing in your life right now, and then we'll go back and hear a little more of your story before we get into your new book, Walking Through Twilight. Yes. Well, I. I became a Christian in the summer of 1976 when I was 19, and I came out of some interest in Eastern mysticism and Western philosophy, particularly atheism. And since then, I've tried to understand the meaning of Christianity, defend its truth, apply its lessons. And that's taken me into campus ministry, also into academic work. So. Just recently, I was in Providence, Rhode Island, and was at the Evangelical Theological Society. And I found that very heartening, because I was able to give two papers that were pretty well-received and have significant interactions with several people that I had not met previously. And some of that related to the, the struggles that my wife, Rebecca, and I have gone through. I should also say that I've been a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary since the previous millennium started in 1993. <laughs> so I'm into my 25th year. Yeah. Can you just tell people what the Evangelical Theological Society is? Because I'm guessing most people don't know what that is. Yes, it's a organization that's been around since, well, it's 69 years old. And it's a place where evangelical scholars come and give lectures and interact with each other's ideas. Uh, one of the best parts of it is the huge uh, floor full of publishers who come offering their books at a big discount. And there's a lot of very good fellowship among Christian scholars, professors, pastors, students, various others. Yeah, great. It's a, it's a big conference of evangelical scholarship. Exactly. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, I don't know if I'll ever qualify to go there, but it sounds awesome. 
Oh, you have a theological degree, and yeah, that's true. Uh, you can do it. Well, you there, should join and, and attend sometime. There we go. That's a good idea, actually. I'll have to put that in my pipe for next year. Okay. Um. All right. So you mentioned you're coming to Christ, and I'm sure that I've heard this story before, but will you tell us that story and how that came about? Yes. I uh, was not raised a Christian, but I was raised in what I would call a God-fearing home. But when I went away to college in 1975, I became quite interested in uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, paranormal experiences, and so on. And I also got quite interested in philosophy. This was at the University of Northern Colorado. But when I went home for the summer that year, I went back to Anchorage, Alaska. About half of my friends had converted, much to my surprise. Mm. So... I spent quite a bit of time with them, and I spent time with my non-Christian friends. And through a number of experiences and through Bible reading, I publicly confessed Christ uh, sometime in June of 1976 and was baptized shortly thereafter. And uh, the first summer I was a Christian was really tough because I didn't know how to think. And a lot of my friends were living off their experiences and their church activities. And I was a thinker before I converted and I was a thinker afterwards. So I wasn't sure how to Mm. think. Well, I didn't know really what a Christian worldview was, but in the fall of that year, I went to the university of Oregon in Eugene and I went into the bookstore and I saw this book. It had a very attractive, alluring kind of cover with the title, the God who is there by Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. And that has been the most, influential book in my ministry because it set a course to outthink the world for Christ, essentially, and be confident in the truth and pertinence of Christianity. Yeah, I'm curious. So before you were a believer, what was attractive to you about Hinduism and Buddhism and supernatural experiences? A lot of it came through music. Uh, I was interested in... uh, Musicians like Carlos Santana and John McLaughlin and others, and they were followers of a Hindu guru named Sri Chinmoy, and they would have his poems uh, inside their albums. This is old stuff, you know, albums, uh, prehistoric, back in the 70s. So that interested me, and my experience with Christianity was very limited and somewhat jaded. So I began to explore those things. Uh, And when I went to college, I had a class called The Wisdom of Indian China, and I began to read a lot on my own, various writers like uh, P.D. Uspensky and G.I. Gurdjieff, and books about out-of-body experiences. Uh, There was, as Pascal said, that um, there's an infinite abyss within all of us that only infinite and immutable object can fill, that is God, and that's popularly summarized as there's a God-shaped vacuum in everyone that only God can fill. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so you were kind of curious already about sort of spirituality, but then you found Christ and and he mm-hmm. filled it. And it sounds like Francis Schaeffer um, and his book, The God Is There, sort of kind of filled in some of those gaps in the in Christian thinking for you. 
It certainly did. And I think the first summer I was a Christian, I was trying to live off of spiritual experiences. And when I confessed Christ publicly, I didn't have any kind of positive experience. I didn't have any sense that I was a new creature or that I was forgiven or anything. I simply realized I had reached a fork in the road and was either Christ or something else. And by God's grace, I followed Christ. And really my certainty and my commitment came much more through reasoning things through than uh, particular experiences. And that I think is important because in the Christian life, our sense of God's goodness and presence waxes and wanes. Yes. C.S. Lewis talks about that in the screw tape letters. But if we have good and sufficient reasons to believe Christianity is true, and if we have something of a Christian mind, then we can navigate through those times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of my ambitions with this podcast is to share those things, the, those moments when our experience is better or worse with God. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot to add here to that to that particular conversation. Um, so take us through a little bit, because I know then you got into into philosophy, and and uh, t- like tell us a little bit about how that sort of shaped you as a thinker. Right. I was a journalism major for two years in college, and then I failed a typing test on a manual typewriter. So I decided to become a philosopher to do something practical. So I finished up my philosophy degree in 79 and did five years of campus ministry at the University of Oregon and continued to read, study, write. I wrote my first book during that time, Unmasking the New Age, and got married to Rebecca in 1984, and we went to Madison, Wisconsin, where I did an MA in philosophy. Then we went to Seattle, Washington for three years, and I did campus ministry there. And uh, Becky worked and began doing some research for her books. And in 1993, I went to, uh, or went back to Eugene, actually, and got my PhD there, did more campus ministry, and have been teaching philosophy full-time since 1993. So I find philosophy a way to think carefully, critically, to understand the world of ideas, to identify worldviews, to learn how to argue well. So it's very well integrated into my life, uh, maybe too much, because philosophers tend to have their their head in the clouds and their feet in their mouth sometimes. So <laughs> I have to, <laughs> we can get caught up living our heads and so on. So I'm not the most organized guy, but I'm grateful to God that over all these years, I've been able to read and study and write and teach and preach about the things that matter most. I'm very grateful to God for that, despite everything else I have to do with. Oh, yeah. And I've had the opportunity to hear both you in the classroom and in a a sermon setting, and I'm deeply grateful for the insights that you share. Um, Can you describe a time like when you learned to trust God more deeply because of some of the things that you've, that you studied? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I say this in the book, Walking Through Twilight, that uh, the pain of living with someone with dementia is deep and searing. And God seems absent sometimes. And often what I go back to is that through my, my studies and teaching, debating, mentoring, talking to people, through prayer, the church, I'm convinced that Christianity is indeed true. Christ is Lord. So whatever I feel, whatever I've experienced doesn't change the objective reality. And that's very significant. I will sometimes say that when I teach, I'll say, I know too much to go back. Mm. I'm certainly not going to become a Hindu, a Buddhist, an atheist, an agnostic, a Mormon. I know too much to go back. And that's significant. And I think perhaps that's why God didn't give me this rush of spiritual experience early on as a Christian, because I needed to get grounded in truth and in the power of Christianity to change people through its truth. And that's what I've attempted to do uh, all these years. I've been a Christian now for 41 years. This is in the chapter called Giving Up. You say, in the following pages, I trace this mournful journey of feeling so forsaken, but not being forsaken. I think that's interesting, the, the idea that you know, feeling so. You know, I I open the show by saying that we talk about the Christian experiences, and so um, I definitely like that's part of what I want to share because I feel like sometimes we don't talk about the feeling of those things. Um, mm-hmm. But what I love that you say is that you you even in spite of the feeling, we can know who God is and and what He's done, and we can hold on to those things even when the feeling is one of being forsaken. Right, and we're in good company, because there's yes. a whole genre in the Bible of lament that is complaint, feeling isolated, abandoned, even being angry with God, and this is in Holy Scripture. We've got about 60 Psalms of lament. We have a book called Lamentations. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of a philosophical lament we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, which has ministered to me very richly over years and years. So one of the goals of the book is to give people the permission to lament and instruct them on how to lament, because it's a deep literature in the Bible, and it's also a ineradicable part of life in a fallen world. Think of Psalm 6, uh, how long, O Lord? That is, Lord, it's taken so long. When will you come? When will you deliver us? And even before Becky was diagnosed with dementia three and a half years ago, I had been studying lament and teaching on it. And these experiences of hearing the diagnosis and bringing in the caregivers, going to the doctors, uh, feeling so overwhelmed and so forlorn, uh, all these factor into mm-hmm. what it means to lament. And without that knowledge, I don't really understand how I could do this. Yeah. 
Can you tell us a little bit of that story with uh, how how that came that came about that you share in the book? Yes. Well, I married uh, Becky Merrill back in 1984. Um, the name she goes by now is Rebecca Merrill Grotheis. And we had a, a very intellectual relationship. Uh, not only that, obviously. We fell in love. And Becky offered to edit my first book, and she encouraged me to write it, finish it. It was called Unmasking the New Age. And Becky and I had a terrific literary relationship because I would write books and she would edit them. And then later she started writing books and I didn't have to edit her. She was such a good writer, but I would interact with her about the books. And uh, Becky had never been completely healthy. She always had fatigue issues and some pain problems. And I think it was about 1991, she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And that got progressively worse over the years. And there were other physical problems. So <clears throat> as so many things were taken away from us, I started really thinking about the themes in Ecclesiastes and the Psalms of Lament. And then in 19, um, excuse me, in 2000. 14 in February, we had to put Becky in the hospital for depression. And while she was in the hospital, she was in a psychiatric unit for five weeks. It was discovered that she had this very rare form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia, which is fairly different than Alzheimer's. It tends to strike people who are younger. And it's a frontal temporal lobe disorder. So it starts at the front of the brain and goes backwards. And the first symbol, first symptom rather, is inability to find words. And that's one of the tragedies of this because Becky was a wordsmith. She was a master writer and editor. After she was in the hospital, we brought her home and we realized that we needed a living caregiver. And I was told that people with this disease live five to 10 years after they contract it or after the onset of the disease. So everything changed at that point. And when we got the diagnosis, I, as I say in the book, I, I gave up. That is, I didn't give mm -hmm. up on God, but I gave up on Becky getting better because she had been chronically ill for many years. We had tried all kinds of alternative health remedies regular health remedies, uh, prayer, fasting, and none of that was going to change this dementia. So the book really wanted to be written, to put it in a funny way. I didn't want to write the book, although several people asked me to write about it. One of the editors of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, saw me on campus, he was visiting town, and he said, I think uh, you should write an article for us, for Christianity Today, about your wife's journey and how you've dealt with it. And I said, well, maybe, I don't think so. Thank you for asking. <clears throat> and then I went to my office and started writing the article and wrote it very quickly. 
was published uh, about two years ago. And I had never gotten such a response to an article in all my years of writing. Many emails, letters, phone calls uh, of people thanking me for it and telling me their own stories of woe. And after the article was published, three publishers contacted me about writing a book on the subject. One of them was my long-term publisher, InterVarsity Press, and I decided to go with them for this book. In the summer of 2016, I began to write the book, and a lot of it was simply reflections on Becky's situation and how people responded to her, whether caregivers, doctors, the kind of things I was observing and reflecting on as a philosopher, what was happening to her, her brain, her mind. So that eventually ended up as this book called Walking Through Twilight. Yeah. You um, addressed this in the introduction, and I, this is one of the things I underlined. You write, Dawn follows darkness, but this comes at the price of agonized waiting. This book is a witness to the waiting. Um, yeah, waiting is such a huge part of the spiritual journey, wait, waiting on God. And those are the times when he can feel distant. You found in Ecclesiastes a lot of something to relate to about that. What What is it about that book that really... That draws you, uh, that draws you out, or or helps you. Well, for one thing, literarily, it's marvelous. I think mm-hmm. we have some of the most most beautiful prose in the English language in Ecclesiastes. Of course, it's translated from Hebrew, but the frankness of it, the not shrinking back yeah. from the disappointments of life the honesty, but then always considering these disappointments and the vaporous nature of life before the face of God and finding the enjoyments and the gifts that we can, even when we see injustice and when we can't find complete satisfaction in this world. So I've been reading and rereading and studying Ecclesiastes really ever since I became a Christian, but especially in the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years. I often read it, reflect on it, ask questions about it, like uh, how does the writer view philosophy? How does he view uh, reasoning? And I often find myself quoting Ecclesiastes to people and uh, bringing it to mind. And I realized that the writer who in Hebrew is called Koheleth, didn't know as much as we do Mm. because he was living in a time before Christ. Nevertheless, Paul in Romans 8 speaks of the whole world groaning together in travail, awaiting its redemption. And some of the words he uses in that passage hark back to this idea of vanity or meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes. And Something that's very important to realize is the word that is translated vanity or meaninglessness is a word called hevel, and it means mist or vapor. It doesn't mean life is absurd, like you'd find, let's say, in uh, Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialists. Mm -hmm. 
What he means is that life has a vaporous quality. We think something is solid, enduring, strong, and it melts away. So when you realize that you can't keep a grip on anything temporal, really, you can't control it, it frees you a bit to not put your final trust in the things of this earth, but to remember God who will bring all things into account and remember God who gives us good things in life, such as uh, eating and drinking and working at things we're good at and so on. So it's probably in some ways the most philosophical book in the Bible. And the writer is very earnest in seeking truth. So there's a model for being studious and tenacious in finding truth. Very profound book, and I think a lot of people miss its profundity because it's tough. You, the yeah. first line is often translated meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> you think, what is this doing in the Bible? It should say meaningful, meaningful, everything is meaningful. So you have to uh, interrogate the book and let it interrogate you uh, for years, and that's what I've been doing. Mm. Well, I respect that a lot. I think one of the best, so as I'm reading, I've been been reading through it over the last day or so, and, uh, you know, the passages that have meant a lot to me keep coming up, like Romans 8, and the, you mentioned the groaning of, of our bodies waiting for redemption, mm-hmm. and uh, Hebrews 12, the, the beginning there um, of Jesus, um, just directing us to him, having that kind of eternal perspective. It sounds like you know, that's what Ecclesiastes has done, sitting with it, letting it um, kind of soak in your soul, if you will. Yeah. Um, has, right. has been, that's kind of what Ecclesiastes has done for you as you've gone through this really difficult experience. Yes, that's true. That's a good way to put it. It lets you sit with the vanity of life and not paper over it. Yeah. And not try to pretend like it's not there. Now, Ecclesiastes doesn't have the deep emotionality that you'll find in the Psalms of Lament, like, let's say, Psalm 90. Sure. The Psalm of Moses, the man of God. But the writer certainly observes lamentable situations and often says, mist, it's mist, it's a chasing after wind. But he never deserts God, and he never turns on God. Yeah, I see that in the things that you write as well. This chapter um, really spoke to me, the temptation to hate God. You say, I hated God, and I told him so repeatedly. Um, I hated myself for doing it, but I did it. And that, um, you know, you talk about that, being having this kind of temptation to just be angry with God and and to kind of change how you thought of him but you but you didn't you kind of clung to who you knew he was but you had to go through that you know, what do you think you know as a as a Christian community we can learn from that experience well i think that chapter may be a bit jarring for some people <laughs> yeah and i i commend people who never have those feelings But you'll find anger and protest in the Bible against God. In fact, Moses in Psalm 90 basically says, God, relent. 
have mercy on us. Mm-hmm. You, know, you put us through so many struggles and difficulties. And you find it in other portions of Scripture, too. In fact, the end of Psalm 39 says, God, leave me alone. You caused me so much trouble. And that was written by David. Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, which was written by Heman the Ezraite, who was chronically ill, don't resolve into praise or thanksgiving. In fact, Psalm 88, the last verse says, darkness is my closest friend. Wow. And that's the end of the psalm. So I think we need to be honest with our passions. Mm. And it depends on your personality type. I'm a pretty intense person. I can get angry and I'm thinking about God a lot. And I'm thinking about God's involvement in my life. And when it becomes seemingly unbearable, then I my response can often be anger. Um, and again, I'm not proud of it, but I think it's part of life in a broken, fragmented world. We just cry out and say, um, why are you doing this, God? And we find that in Scripture. It's, it's part of being a child of God who's in a fractured, splintered, painful world. And so in that chapter, I'm trying to help people who feel the way that I do. Mm-hmm. Try to find your way through that. Yeah, well, you bring out so many of the of the pieces that are underneath the anger. You know, the feeling of abandonment, the feeling of, mm-hmm. hey, I wouldn't do this to people I loved. You know, why, right. why does God do that? Um, that I just, you know, I thought that was really, really profound. You know, but you also write this. I, I find this argument persuasive. You were talking about, uh, you know, if I were God, I would do it better. And you say, well, I'm, I'm not infinite. I'm not all-knowing, all-powerful. Um, but you say, but my emotions may lag behind. And I just, I think that the church doesn't have a good, or we have a difficult time with that anyway. Let me say that, that we, we have a hard right. time sitting with people and letting their emotions lag behind the... Mm-hmm. Truth that we know. I mean, we can we can know the truth about who God is and believe that He is good, and yet not feel those things. Right, and I have a good partner in this because C.S. Lewis speaks to this very profoundly in his book *A Grief Observed*, and I believe I quote him in that chapter. He's been a helpful partner in lament for me, as mm-hmm. has. Nicholas Wolterstorff, who wrote a book 30 years ago called Lament for His Son. His son died at age 25 in a hiking accident, in a mountain climbing accident in Europe. And I was quite honored to have uh, Dr. Wolterstorff write the foreword to my book. Yeah, he writes, you quote him at one point, and one, so there's a couple of phrases that I'm just going to steal, but I promise to credit you for them. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but one of them was from a quote of... Wolterstorff, the mourners are aching visionaries at the end of that. Just, right. um, oh, it's a, such a, like a half page or so of ideas that, you know, the, the, you can't, you can't understand the deep beauty in the world if you don't feel the, feel the deep ache of the loss and the, and the, the horribleness of sin, you know, those kind of things. Right. Well, and also one thing 
I, I think I don't know what God will do with this book, but I think one thing it will do is surprise people yeah. in some places. And I found even uh, the music of Metallica, yeah. some of it, to uh, express my frustrations and hurt in a broken world. And what I say is you don't hear much of redemption in their music, but you really get a strong dose of the visceral nature of the fall. And when you reflect on the goodness of God and the world that is to come, uh, it can become even sweeter when you, as you've been saying, sit with this and let it, uh, let it have its place in your soul. Yeah, absolutely. And I found a number of other people who say that about that kind of music. It's not my favorite kind of music, and a lot of it is dark, and I don't recommend a lot of it, but it's a lot of their music is a kind of secular lament. Yeah. And did, I find some of that meaningful. Do I remember right? Did you go see them when they were in Denver? No. Oh, you didn't? I'm okay. too scared to do that. Yeah, right. I'm too old and too scared to do that. <laughs> I might end up in a mosh pit, and that would be the end of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There there are some bands I I don't know if I'd go see. I Metallica I've always had kind of a weird feeling or relationship to them, so I don't know if I'd see them. But I definitely resonate with the point about that a lot of times, you know, our secular writers, secular musicians, um, even though you don't find redemption necessarily, you find more honesty about the human condition. Mm-hmm. You, you, they don't feel committed to resolve it into praise or to to say yes, I'm struggling, but I'm going to trust anyway. They just go, no, this this stinks, and I'm struggling with it. Um, sometimes not that right. nicely, but there, right. I've done the same. I've found you know of different artists, but found a lot of. Um, oh, I know you you like Bruce Coburn. I I love. I do. You ever heard his song "Pacing the Cage"? That is one of my all time favorites. No. But, Oh, it's a, it's a really haunting, um, just meditation on kind of getting older and, you know, feeling mm. like, hey, the world is broken, and, you know, I may right. not be able to influence as much as I would like, but uh, it's, mm. you know, sort of pacing the cage, waiting for, mm-hmm. kind of waiting for redemption, maybe. Right. Yeah, I found a lot of, a lot of truth and strong feeling in Bruce Coburn over the years. And I think that I've I quoted him a few times. Yeah, in the book, very profound writer, an excellent guitar player, songwriter, poet. I saw him once in Chicago, at the House of Blues. So I saw I saw mm. two shows there when when we lived there. I went to Trinity, so we were there for a while. And uh, mm-hmm. I saw Striper, and I saw oh, <laughs> and I saw Bruce Coburn, and. Uh, it was in within of like six months of each other, and the Striper concert was smokier than the Bruce Coburn concert, which I thought was weird. Mm. But um, anyway, they were uh, that was a I kind of became a fan of him then. But yeah, I think yeah. poets so to, to kind of bring that around. I think the poets, like pe- people who can write that, and kind <clears throat> of express it, um, really are are helpful. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, I have I have. Some poetry in the book. I start out the book with a poem by George Eliot. It's one of my favorite poets. And uh, we have one of Rebecca's poems in the book also called Wounded Risen One, mm. which is uh, long and very eloquent, eloquent, excuse me, eloquent and um, beautiful. 
And then I have a short lament poem called Now Not Yet. And there are other poems I put in the book. Sometimes poetry is the best way to express these difficult, uh, hard-to-describe feelings. Somehow the poets can capture it better than other kinds of writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know you, you do that on your Facebook. So, friends, if you're listening and you want to follow Dr. Grodice on Facebook, you should do that. Because um, every once in a while you'll throw a, a poem out there that uh, reflects right. some of what you've been thinking about. I appreciate that you do that. Good. You have this chapter called Dogs, Dementia, and Us. Why did you include that? Well, I found that our dog, Sonny, who is a golden doodle, has really been a godsend. We got him in 2012. He's now five. And he has a high degree of, excuse me, emotional intelligence. And he loves people. He loves to play, likes everybody, except with a few exceptions. And I found that dogs can be a tremendous comfort because of their unconditional love, their beauty, their physical beauty. And so in that chapter, I reflect a little bit about what the Bible says about dogs, which is pretty negative. And I think that's because dogs were typically not domesticated. Sure. And they were roving around in packs and so on. But dogs can be a gift of God. And they certainly are for us, our dog, Sonny. So when you're suffering like this, you look anywhere you can go for help, for comfort that's not immoral or illegal. You you want to find some positive escape from all the pain. And Sunny provides that. I have an interlude in the book simply called Sunny. And there's a photograph of Sunny and my wife, Becky. He is extremely aware of her moods and also my moods. So he will... uh, jump on her lap and lick her and wag his tail with a low wag, which means he's concerned about things. And in fact, he's so concerned about Becky that sometimes I will be upset crying and he'll go to Becky. It's like poor Becky, Doug's upset. Wow. He knows. Yes, he does. He's, he's a very aware dog and he brings us a tremendous amount of joy. So I use that chapter as a way of reflecting on the role of dogs and humanity, how we interact with them, what gifts they can give us. Yeah, well it's beautiful that he um he brings joy to you even in the middle of of the sorrow. Um and that he is a comforter right. for you. God's provided him for you. Mm-hmm. Well, Becky was in the hospital for five weeks back in 2014. And when she came back, he was ecstatic. He was jumping up in the air and squeaking and running around. And what I found now is if Becky and I go out, is usually to a doctor's appointment. When I come back, he goes to her first and greets her first. Mm. And I think that's because he's afraid she might not come home or she might be gone for a very long time. 
Yeah. So we're very grateful for Sonny. And he loves her. Yeah, very much. I wanted to ask about something you mentioned earlier. You, you said you're not sure what God will do with this book. What are you hoping that God will do with this book? I'm hoping that it'll bring insight and comfort to people and give people permission to lament, teach people how to suffer well, suffer themselves and suffer well with others, be able to offer condolences without harmful cliches. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter on trying to suffer well with others. It's actually an appendix to the book, uh, which is called Lightening the Load. And there's some things people say and do that are not helpful, uh, especially promising to help you in various ways and then not doing it. We've experienced that quite a bit. Because when you have a situation like ours and there's a healthy spouse and a very sick one, the healthy spouse is overwhelmed by responsibility and often fatigue. So. In my case, I require a lot of help in many areas. Uh, Becky's care. We really can't leave her in the house by herself now. She's not dangerous, but she um, could get very confused. She could fall down the stairs. She could panic and not know what to do and so on. So we need assistance. And I've had several people say they would do pretty significant things to lighten our load, and they haven't. And in one case, they haven't even said why they didn't. So that's the worst thing, is to promise something that you don't make good on. But there are things such as simply being present and showing love and offering tangible help and not saying uh, things that are not helpful ultimately, like God will bring good out of this. Well, he does, but at the worst of it, that's a million miles from your thinking and from your heart. Yeah. So it's more just getting through the next day or hour or minute. I talked to a friend of mine recently, Denver seminary student named Jay. He's been through some horrific suffering in the last several years. And he said, sometimes all you can do is breathe, repeat, (laughs) breathe, repeat. I'm still alive. God's still alive. And somehow, we will get through this. Yeah. I think it's one of the hard things that, you know, that happen, you know, when you know someone who's going through a a struggle, you want to be a comfort, you want to be helpful. um, You want to, you want to help them see the bigger picture, but that's not always, there's not always, that's not always the time, you know? Right. Right. Well, I found things like saying simply, I'm so sorry, or, I can't understand what you're going through. That's meaningful. And that's an admission of ignorance. What is God doing through this? I don't know, but I do know God and God knows me. Yeah. And I have brothers and sisters in Christ who care. And that's what the body of Christ is supposed to do is, love one another, serve one another. Yeah, I love that. I'm glad you included that in your in the book. Um, I think it'll help a lot of people to be more aware of, of kind of where 
the the experience that that can cause. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, anything else you want to leave us with, Doug? I I think the church often lacks a strong theology of suffering and lament. Mm, yes. And when you read through the scripture, you find people in pain. You find people questioning God. You even find God lamenting. In several cases, Jesus lamented over the unbelief of Israel. Paul lamented over the unbelief of the Jews in Romans 9 and Romans 10. I hope this book will contribute something to a theology of suffering and to a psychology, I guess you could say, of lament. Because when you rush people through grief or you don't honor their pain, mm. it makes things much worse. Right. So through the lens of my own experience, I'm hoping people can see something helpful for them and for others and uh, see that God's grace penetrates through our questionings and our anger and our bewilderment over what's happening to us. Yeah, you're right. We don't have a great theology of suffering, and uh, my hope is that through this, we'll recognize that it's an ordinary part of the journey. It happens to everybody at some point, some more than mm -hmm. others, and it does not indicate anything about who who we are, our love for Christ. It's just right. it's just part of the experience, and as we go through it, you know learning to walk with others uh, in a helpful way is is the best that we can that we can do and and praying and lamenting right I love that well thank you for being here you're welcome friends I hope that you enjoyed this conversation I know that lament is a difficult topic but again, we go through these things, and I think it was an important piece of the spiritual journey that I wanted to share with you, and I'm glad that Dr. Grotheis wrote this book. Dr. Grotheis, thank you so much for joining us, sharing your stories, sharing your life, um, and even your pain. I think it's a powerful testimony to God and what He is doing in the world. Friends, you can get that book at Amazon.com. You can go to the HalfwayTherePodcast.com uh, show notes page find a link if you just want an easy link that does that is an affiliate link sends a little bit of what you spend back to me at no cost to you uh if that's something you wanted to do otherwise just get it go to amazon or go to dr grotheis's uh website i linked also to his facebook page i mentioned that and he mentioned a ton of books and resources i linked all of those at halfway there in the show notes page so that you can check that out as well again i want to mention go to halfwaytherepodcast.com and get the uh get on the mailing list to be notified for new episodes that is uh definitely something that's growing and will be a bigger part of 2018 can't wait to see you there thank you friends uh, until next time keep the faith